You're about to listen to the Meet Mediocrity Podcast, Season 3, Episode 20. Today's episode comes on the last Friday of May, May being Mental Health Awareness Month. And today's conversation with Liz Swigert is all about mental health awareness. Ready to hear more about it? Let's get started. It's your host, Mediocre Mitch, and welcome to the Meet Mediocrity Podcast, Season 3, Episode 20. That, my friends, is the 70th, 7-0 episode of the Meet Mediocrity Podcast. And it comes to you on this Friday, the last Friday in May, May being Mental Health Awareness Month. And this wasn't really planned well in advance. It just kind of fell into place as I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine who is also a friend of mine who I've known for years, and her name is Liz Swigert. And Liz, as you will quickly find out as you listen to this conversation, is an incredibly special and interesting person, and she's incredibly brave and caring for telling her story today on the Meet Mediocrity podcast. You see, Liz is, frankly, someone who I met probably about five years ago at work. We were working on a project together in Houston. We were sitting in a conference room together. Um, I wanted to, during one of our breaks, I was going to head down to Starbucks, and Liz said, I want to go to Starbucks too. And we started speaking with each other, and I was like amazed by Liz. She's incredibly smart. She's incredibly successful in her career. She's witty. She's funny. She's just the type of person I would like, I'd want to hang around with. Like, I think everyone would. I know I did, and I do. So the story is that one day um, I heard at work that Liz was taking a leave of absence. And I didn't give it much thought. I didn't call her. I may have had a fleeting thought that I hope she's okay and I hope it's all good. And that's it. Until about, I guess it's a few months ago now, that Liz made a post on LinkedIn that kind of was a coming out post. She was coming back to work she um, readily admitted that she was um, coming back to work, having dealt with a terrible episode of major depressive disorder, a chronic condition she has had for presumably much of her life, but it got so bad that she couldn't function. Um, I'm not going to take the details here. I'll let you hear the details, but she, was take, she had taken a leave of absence from work and she was now back. So I immediately called Liz. Um, we had a great conversation. I was so sorry to hear about her struggles. I was so glad to hear that she was doing better. I didn't invite her to be on the podcast, but I promised myself I'd keep in touch with her a little bit better than I had done. And it kind of occurred to me. 
as we uh, entered the month of May, and I heard all about Mental Health Awareness Month, and I kept coming back to Liz and how brave she was to tell her story, at least a little glimpse of her story on, on LinkedIn, on social media, and how I was wondering if she'd be willing to tell her story in a little bit more great te- in a little bit greater detail for the Meet Mediocrity podcast. And she said yes. And we had a great conversation. And I'm going to share that with you today. So without further delay, here's my conversation on the last Friday in May, Mental Health Awareness Month, with my friend, my colleague, and someone who is now my hero, Liz Swigert. So Liz, thanks for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mitch. So Liz, you and I are work colleagues, and that's how I got to know you. And I have tens of thousands of work colleagues, and you are on a very incredibly short list, uh, very incredibly, like less less than two hands worth of fingers list of um, people who I admire in our company. And one of the things I admire about you is your just incredible um, talent, introspection, openness, um, focusing on multiple aspects of wellness. In my mind, you're like the complete package of someone who I want to have coffee with as often as possible. So how's that for a tea up, Liz? No pressure at all. <laughs> um, Liz, I'm not even going to ask you a specific question other than with that tea up, tell me, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about Liz, a little bit about your kind of adult journey, and then what we'll do is we'll take that kind of description and we'll riff and we'll have a conversation about it. I love it. Thank you for that. So um, as you and I have joked before, how do you tell a New Yorker? Well, you don't, they tell you. Right. I, uh, so I grew up in New York City. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I went to one of those K through 12 all-girls schools that involve a lot of plaid and field hockey and croquet. <laughs> um, and I, a, couple of, a couple of very interesting things happened toward the end of my um, high school years. So the first is as a 16-year-old New Yorker, of course, I have therapist. <laughs> and um, my therapist said to my parents, I remember this, we were about to walk out of her brownstone office. And she said to my mother, um, I believe that Elizabeth has depression, but it's not diagnosable at this time. And I didn't understand what that meant, but it had something to do with the DSM and my age. Um, but that was that was a very interesting and it turned out to be a very important moment because it started a, a journey that took me, as you noted, through through my adulthood. The second thing that happened at the end of those high school years was that I realized that my life was going to be set out for me. I had been with the same 30 women since kindergarten. And here I am about to graduate and everybody's going to an Ivy League school. And um, this is not my life. I'm I'm not. I was, but I'm not a debutante. Right. Um, and I needed to, I needed to forge my own path. So I applied early to Rice University, which was binding. 
And so I had no choice. And I had my day Rice University in Houston, in Houston Texas. Texas. Son and, of a gun. Okay. And, not not yeah. where I would have predicted the Upper West Side girl to go. That will be a theme. So I had my Davy Crockett moment. You may all go to hell and I will go to Texas. <laughs> um, and that's what I did. And I didn't know how to drive. And oh my gosh, um, you need to know how to drive. Um, and so thank heavens, I met this really cute guy my senior year. Um, and he's still around 20 years later. Um, and he he taught me how to drive. But it was um, it was a culture shock. And when I got to when I got to college, uh, that was that was where I experienced my first major depressive episode, and I was officially diagnosed with major depressive disorder. I was introduced to psychiatric medication, and I began this really elaborate dance between the two factions that live in my head. Um, and I I like to say that I have a beautiful mind and a jerk brain. <laughs> well said. <laughs> That's and an interesting description. They are at war. Um, mm. My jerk brain um, is on a never-ending talk track voiced by Ryan Reynolds um, that tells me how not enough I am, um, what a failure I am. It is the source of my desire for perfection. It It is the root of, of everything that tells me that um, I I don't deserve anything that I have. And it, it, in moments, I will simply be found out for the imposter that I am. So that's, that's the, that's one of the voices that lives up there. Um, And I have, I've went on this journey of living my adult life, trying to figure out how I silenced that voice. And that's a lot of pressure. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, as I'm doing that, right, I'm, I'm also trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what should I do? What should I be? So in college, um, I started off in mechanical engineering and then I kind of was like, well, you know, history is really cool. So I did that, um, which ultimately I was told I had to pick something to have put on my diploma. So I'm technically a history major. Um, I also did. Uh, I also took some forays into graduate level chemical engineering. I I did a whole thing on Gothic architecture. You know, I I I did a lot. And when it came, which by to- the way, all of that makes makes you so interesting to be the person <laughs> who I want to have coffee with. Look, I was an English <laughs> literature major, so I understand you need something for your diploma. You may as well put something that's interesting and fun, but. Where yes. that took you. Keep going. And so, um, well, where it was about to take me was law school because my dad's a lawyer, so family business. And I, um, about three weeks before graduation, realized that I didn't want to move back to New York. I, I wanted to marry my boyfriend. Um, and I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Like I was doing this because I had nothing better to do. And I decided that that was an, that was not an acceptable reason to go in as much debt as I would right. um, and set myself up for something I did not want to do. Um, so I called up the law school and I said I wasn't coming. And they said, you, nobody turns down this scholarship. And I right. said, well, I like to be I like to be a pioneer. Um, and then that night I went to a dinner for people who were graduating, um, who were history majors and had written an honors thesis. And I had written this independent study on ancient Chinese cartography map making, um, which is fascinating and a story for another cast. Um, And I sat next to a woman who worked at Arthur Anderson 
and she needed to hire an associate into the international tax practice that had just started doing this thing called transfer pricing, which was just a few years old and nobody really knew what it was yet. But um, could I figure it out? And I said, sure. I've never taken an accounting class in my life. I've taken one economics class, pass, fail, but I can do this. It, it can't be that much harder than Chinese cartography, right? That's what you were thinking. How much and- harder could it be? Pretty much. I figured that out. So I, yes. So that's, that was my, that was the beginning of, of my, my career. I went to Anderson. I spent a summer doing 5471s, 5472s. I, I learned everything that I could possibly learn about, um, yeah, about international tax and then transfer pricing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, um, the firm kind of went down the following year. There's a little did. thing called Enron. I remember. <laughs> yes. Um, and and then I sort of did the happy meal, sort of the, the, for a limited time, collect all four um, in, in public accounting until I until I landed. I, uh, I had a job, I, another job that I really had no business having. Um, I was working in a nonprofit environment and I was in charge of AR, AP, payroll, benefits. I mean, everything. Again, still haven't taken an accounting class. So taught myself debits and credits. Uh, And then I realized about a year and a half in why I had been hired into that position. And it was because I um, determined that my boss had been embezzling money. Um, And I caught it in a bank reconciliation. Because when you, when you learn something from scratch, you you go over everything so many times because it's not automatic. Um, so that happened, and um, whistleblowers don't stay in their own villages very long, and right. that then catapulted me back into public accounting, where um, I spent a few more years back in transfer pricing. I got my MBA, operations and supply chain management, specialty in statistical process control. Uh, and I continued, I continued my journey on. So this is a, that's so this is a perfect point for me to chime in. So what you've just described is someone who is a, you've got a pretty, you got a pretty intellectual head on your shoulders. You, um, have some mental wellness challenges that, that are constantly gnawing at you. So that's parallel number, parallel number one highly intellectual, interested in exploring learning challenges. Parallel number two, m- mental wellness challenges and, and and something that that's kind of always with you and and creating a ch- pressure against those that that intellect, right? And and so what what emerges is someone who, to me, when I first met you, like I was interested in the intellect, and and not to mention you're a pretty you're a pretty in, you're a pretty fun person to hang out with too. So I'm sitting here saying, intellectual, interesting, fun, nice, caring. I really like Liz. What I didn't know is that you had this parallel struggle going on as well, right? So, um, Liz, you're I'm you know I know for a fact. I think you know for a fact too. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who who have the same struggles but most of us don't know it right um because who talks about it so you had an inflection point i guess is what a couple of years ago maybe maybe a year ago 
It's about two, two years, years, two years ago. ago. Huh? Let, let me let me describe the inflection point from my perspective, and then you can describe it from your perspective. Um, one day, um, I heard through the grapevine at work that Liz was taking a leave of absence from work, and I, being too busy to do the right thing, I kind of said. Oh, that I hope she's okay. I really like Liz. And I didn't call you. I didn't text you. I just kind of said, um, I hope everything's okay with Liz. I really like Liz. And then I saw this post on LinkedIn, I guess a year later, that kind of said, um, I um, readily admit that I'm emerging from um, depression and mental wellness challenges. And I... Um, I'm emerging and I'm resurfacing in the world. And that's when I reached out to you. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how are you doing? And I'm glad to see you're doing better. And that was my perception of the whole thing, right? And we've stayed in touch since then. And now you here, here you are on my podcast. Um, but how did this all transpire from your perspective, Liz? That's what people really care about. Oh, so we've we've talked about the warring factions in my head for, for many years, for, for almost 20 years, I managed to keep things um, at bay. So you, you've, you've used both mental health and mental wellness. And I, I try to be really clear when I talk about them. And again, this is my definition from my perspective. Mm -hmm. When we think about mental wellness, that's something all of us have to have to deal with. And really we all experience mental wellness, the way I talk about it, is our ability to persevere and be resilient through life's inevitable ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be more stressful when things are going great, planning a wedding, for example. Right, right. Um, that can be a really tough time, even though it's the happiest day of my life. <laughs> um, and so what we do is we work on the things that help us to just get through life. And sometimes that's whether or not we sleep enough, it's how we feed our bodies. It's how we move, physical exercise, sunshine, and fresh air. It's meditation. It's yoga. It's mindfulness. It's all of the things that we do that help build us up so we can get through and persevere when life just is life. Yep. Every day, every human. Exactly. And here's the thing. That's something that, of course, I deal with as well. Now, what I have had as an experience is that sometimes the mental wellness aspects for me start to slide over into the clinical. Hmm. It becomes symptoms of an illness and major depressive disorder is an illness and it's a chronic one. And it's one that I live with because every so often my brain chemistry decides that it does not want to play ball <laughs> and I cannot yoga myself out of that. And that is a place where I need to get professional help. And what I have come to learn over the years is that there are leading indicators of that for me. One of them is my laundry. When Your I stop laundry. when I stop doing my laundry, I'm sliding into a depression because it's one of the here's the here's the thing that I've experienced with depression. I have a lot of people be like, but you don't seem like you're sad all the time. I'm like, right, because I'm not sad all the time. I don't experience depression as sadness. I experience it as nothing. I don't care. I mm. can't bring myself to care. 
And for anyone who knows me, that statement is anathema because I, I mean, there was a wonderful line from a Lorraine Hansberry play. I mean, which the title character says, I care, I care about it all. It takes too much energy not to care. And that's me. And I get to this place where I'm detached and I'm numb. And that is how I experience major depression. And when I stop caring for myself, doing the little things that we just do because we like to wear clean clothes, we like to clean our bodies, we we like to just do these basic personal care things, and that drops off. So I've learned over the years what that is for me. Well, I got to September of 2018, and I I was two years um in, into my my stint as a as a partner, right? I had gotten mm-hmm. to the top of my profession, yep. something I'd worked for for a very long time, and I couldn't slow down. Everything was popping. I was George Clooney and up in the air, <laughs> and I um, I started to realize I'm sliding. So mm-hmm. I did what I do. I went to a psychiatrist, and I I said, all right, I know that I need to go on some medication, and I know that this will patch me up. And that's what I did. And three months later, I found myself, though, back in the place that I was. So I went back and it was a clinical practice. So I saw somebody different every time because, again, I, I don't have time. I can't stop. Right. And I just increased my medication. And let's just put that on rinse and repeat. Yep. And we get to June of 2019, and I'm on the highest doses of three different medications. I have tremors that are so bad that a mutual, a mutual friend of ours, um, actually stopped me at one point and asked if I'd been to a neurologist for my tremors. I had lost my short-term memory. My whole brain was foggy. I couldn't find my words. Like I couldn't articulate myself. Um, and then I had a mix up on my medication and one of my, one of my meds, the dose got cut in half overnight tailspin. I, I don't really remember June of 2019. Wow. Um, and though I didn't stop, I kept hiding. Because I thought I can do this. I can push through this. If only I just tried harder. If only I was just better. If only fill in the blank. And, and, and this is coming from someone who has known that she suffered from depression for over 20 years. And you were still telling yourself, I could try my way out of this. I can. If only I was a better person. Wow. If only I was more perfect. If only I was like all those other people who seem to have everything together. They really don't. But right. if they only don't. I was. And again, this is this was at a point where I still felt embarrassed and ashamed because I wasn't supposed to be this person. This isn't who I wanted other people to see me as. So I just kept pushing. And finally, I got to November of 2019. It was the week before Thanksgiving. I couldn't get out of bed for a week. I hid it from my husband. Like that's, that's some real, like I'm, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for the Academy to call. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. I, I hid it from everyone. Um, and what got what, things that really got me during that period of time. And I know they were well-intentioned. Um, folks would say to me, Oh, I, you know, I can't believe you're feeling down. I mean, you have a marriage anybody would envy. Your children are amazing. And I'm like, yeah, and I don't care. I can't interact with my children. I felt 
I felt so guilty for not wanting to spend time with my children because if anything, kids can see through it when you are not there. Kids are kids and dogs. <laughs> They're far more intuitive than, than, than we, you know, supposedly functioning adults. <laughs> yes. And, and, and so I didn't want to spend time with them, which then I felt guilty about, which just feeds the spiral. That's right. And so I, I just, I got to this point. I remember, I remember lying in my bed and looking up at the ceiling and everything just felt heavy. Like I knew that I was supposed to get, like, I knew what I was supposed to do, but I, everything was too heavy. It was too hard. I, I couldn't move. And it's so hard to explain or express to people who haven't experienced it. Um, and even now, because I have distance between me and where I was then, um, it, it is hard to, it's hard to recall that feeling for which I am grateful. Yeah. You don't want, that's not something you really want to readily relive, but, but no. you're articulating it pretty well. I saw my mind floating up into the air vent above me. I saw myself losing my mind. And that was it for me because my mind is that, that has always been my palace. That is my place. And without that, I thought I was nothing. So um, that's when I started very um, methodically planning to end my life. Right. And that was, you talk about the inflection point. That was it. Um, And I, I was very fortunate. Somehow I managed to text my husband and say, you should come home. I don't send texts like that. And he did. And I found enough words. And that's where my recovery process started. So, well, that's pretty powerful. Um, I even knew the story and it was powerful. Um, So, Liz, you started your recovery. I know you took a leave of absence from work. I know work was very... um, very accepting and accommodating in that regard. Um, and you went through a recovery period, which I'd like to hear a little bit about, but, but I'd also very interested in your um, emergence because your emergence is a bit mind blowing to me. The fact that you are, are, are thriving both at work and academia and physical fitness. And I'm like, you know, if if I if I didn't know, I would have thought. If I didn't know, I would have thought your leave of absence was, you know, spent on an island, kind of like you know, drinking margaritas and working out or something. Um, that's not at all what happened. So tell me a little bit about your recovery and and how you chose to reemerge in such a powerful way. So let let me start off by saying that the margaritas and the island was the initial plan. So. Um, <laughs> So I had this thought. So I was offered a gift. I was offered this incredible gift. And the gift was to take a break, just drop everything and go. Uh, and so I, I, of course, you've met me, Mitch. Um, I had a plan. Um, my plan was 12 weeks. Now, we, we were not like MS Project, but there, were, there was definitely Excel. Um, and I had like a whole 12 week map out plan of how I was going to get off my medication and everything was going to be okay. And then I would be right back. And this was like, kind of like the remake of eat, pray, love. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I, I realized that part of my problem was that I did not have the right medical team. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to replace my medical team first. And that meant finding a really good therapist and finding a really good psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Here's something that I learned. When you want to find a really good therapist, go find the people in your life who over the last, say, two to three years have demonstrated the most emotional growth. And I promise you they have a therapist. The people who are different now than they were before in a good way have a fantastic therapist. And that's what I did. I went to my, I went to my best friend because she has, she has a capacity for growth as an adult that is incredible. And when I said, would you refer me to your therapist? She said, oh, I was waiting for you to ask. <laughs> and that was, that was a key one though, is that finding, there are lots of ways to find a good therapist, yep. um, but finding, finding one who's referred to you by somebody whose growth you admire, yes, that's really valuable. Yes. Um, and then I asked my therapist for reference to a psychiatrist that she likes to work with. And that was how that was how I found my psychiatrist. So you had you 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 now had your team. I had my team, and then um, I went into very intensive therapy. I again, I was fortunate. I was in a place that I didn't need inpatient. I could do outpatient therapy, mm-hmm. um, and so it was twice a week with my therapist, once a week with my psychiatrist, and I I had no idea that it, after an hour of therapy, I could be I could be out for a day. <laughs> It was physically. I was going to say it's exhausting, exhausting. completely exhausting. Yep. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, and that is what I did every week. And it was, it was a question of sometimes, sometimes it was like therapy was the thing that I did for the day and reflection and writing. And I started a blog, um, because, one of the things when I, I knew when I took my leave of absence, um, it would be noticed. Like I can't just disappear. Right. And um, it was important to me that um, I did not leave the team that I work with in a position where they felt that they either had to tell a story that wasn't theirs to tell, right, or that they felt that they had to lie, right, because they wanted to somehow protect me or my brand, and I didn't think that was right. So as you noted, I put it out there on social media. I started the blog and in my out of office for a year, it said in the headline that I was out for a mental health leave of absence, contact a member of your engagement team. Here's my EA. And if you're curious about me, here's a link to my blog. Because to me, leadership is not leaving other people to try and explain or answer questions that put them in the position of having to say what's not theirs that or is one to lie. Of, that is one of many attributes of excellent leadership now i have a, i have a whole thing that i'm working on about how i see sometimes people are underled and overmanaged um but 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 what you just described is a pure leadership move so i like i like the way you handled that so um so how long, Liz, while, you know, during this intense therapy and, and, and um, getting your medication right with your, with your psychiatrist, how long did it take for you to start to feel like you were moving in the right direction? It was six months. It took six full months. It took six whole months. Could probably one of the hardest six months of your life. Easily. It was, it was, very, it was very intense. 
And I'll tell you when I, what I real, when I realized it, the moment that it became clear to me that I was getting better, uh, was when I, I was able to recognize in the moment how I was feeling. Uh, I was in a stressful situation and I realized how I was feeling. And I also recognized that I had a choice to not do what I had always done when I felt that way. And it was a recognition that I had gained self-awareness and that I had recognized my own agency. I'd recognized my own power and that then I could act on that. That changed that. That was the moment that changed for me. A spark of absolute clarity, a spark of clarity. Thank goodness for that. So um, that was six months in and and from that point in time, Liz, to the point in time when you made your the biggest uh, LinkedIn announcement that I'm not going to paraphrase it, but it was, it was kind of like a Liz's back, but not, but not in a BS sort of way, in a very real sort of way. How long was that time period? That was another six months. Another six months. So I was, I was, I, my leave was a year long. Um, It was October when I started to think that I missed working. Mm -hmm. Um, I find, I find it meaningful to be with, well, as you well know, smart people who like to solve problems. Yep. And that was the that was something that I missed. And that's a part of who I am. And I knew that if I was going to get back to truly living, I needed to, I needed to work back to being there. So that was that was my next step. And um I I came, I returned to work um in January of this past year. So it was literally it was January of 2020 to January of 2021. Um, and I felt that it was important that I did put it out there because again, I, when, when I was going through crisis, I had a lot of support. I couldn't find anyone like me. And that was, that was the, the part that I think was hardest was that I, I knew, and I was told I wasn't alone, but I felt really alone. And one of my one of my beliefs coming through this is that there's a really important message that I need to share. And that message is that you are not alone. And not only can things get better, it's 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 more than possible. It's probable. There is help. There is reason for hope. There's reason for optimism. And we don't have to drown in positivity that becomes toxic. We live in a world that tells us that only good vibes are welcome. We live in a world that tells us that we just need to cheer up and have the right attitude. And sometimes that's that's helpful, but a lot of times it's not. And so what I what I hope is that we can bring optimism as the antidote to toxic positivity. But there is reason to believe that it can and will get better. So for you, Liz, I mean, I saw that post um, in January. I, I did the right thing, and I did call you that time. I texted you, then I called you, and then we spoke. And um, interestingly, I then followed you on every social media that I could find you on and watching you run virtual 5Ks. Um, I watch you spend time with your family. I watch you 
earn a PhD um, in organizational leadership psychology, which is a whole, maybe that'll be the next podcast episode. Um, but, but here's the thing you are on, on the surface, you are thriving. Mm-hmm. I am certain that you are not, that, that someone who is diagnosed with depression, that doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. You are managing it. Um, I kind of like, I want to hear, I mean, look, you, you've given a message, Liz, of you're not alone and it can get better and it does take work, but I'd like you to leave leave this conversation with two messages that I'd like to hear from you. Message one I'd like to hear is for people who this resonates with but haven't helped themselves, um, what would your message be to them, A? And B, what would your message be to, to the people who are surrounding them, their friends? And how could they be helpful in a positive way? So I'd love your thoughts on those two things. Well, first, so one, thank you for that. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I still have major depressive disorder. And in fact, last year, I managed to also get diagnosed with um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And Fantastic. That an- oh my gosh, that answered so many questions. <laughs> I like it helped me to understand things that I I could not have put together before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I want I want to frame it this way that sometimes when you are going through these experiences even if you've gone through them for 20 years even if you know what the things are once you're in it your perspective is completely thrown off. Yeah. When you are in the midst of a depression, your perspective is not the same as those looking in from the outside. Mm-hmm. And I, I know for me where I was that it was a combination of things. One, it was that I had to find, I, I actually had to ask for help several different ways before the message got through. Because again, what I thought I was saying and how I thought I was expressing myself wasn't what was perceived. And part of it was because I was re- I was reflecting just relentless energy and positivity because partially I didn't want to be seen, right? Because if I if I really admitted, if somebody if somebody really admitted it to me, like I had to really admit it to myself. And I didn't want to do that. So what I would say is that for those in it. Keep asking for help. Keep articulating it, and and the help the help will come. The help is there. There, there. You are loved, and jerk brain is jerk brain. It is not you. And although it may feel true, um, it is lying. Jerk brain is lying to you. For the people around them. The goal isn't to fix, it's to be helpful. And the question to ask yourself is, is what I am offering to this person helpful? So things that are helpful, telling somebody that you are there, that you care, that you listen, that there is hope, that you will help them to get to the resources that they need. Those things are really helpful. What's also helpful is saying that you don't know all the answers. Being authentic. You don't have to have the perfect words. You just need to have ones that are real for you. And being honest when you feel uncomfortable. 
and your discomfort with somebody else's feelings is not an opportunity to invalidate them. If somebody says to you, I want to end my life, the answer is not, oh, no, you don't. You don't mean that. That's that's coming from a place of discomfort. Wow, that's a lot. It sounds really overwhelming. Can we talk about that a little bit more? There's some place that you can also talk to that I know is better equipped than I am. Let me help you to get there. Those are the things you can do where you don't have to fix it and you don't have to invalidate them. And that's the key. The key is how can I be helpful? And if you do that and you're authentic, you're you're gonna you're it's not about saying the right thing, you're gonna say a good thing. You know, Liz, that was so well said. You know, look, I, I don't thank God I don't suffer from um serious depression, but I can imagine that it's incredibly difficult when you're in a depressive state to clearly communicate. First of all, I don't, I wouldn't know how, because I, I haven't experienced it myself, but how to communicate clearly the help you need and the feelings you're feeling when you're, you're, you're you kind of don't want to admit it. And you kind of like, as you said, if I could try my way out of this, I could yoga my way out of this and you can't. So, so the mess that message of communicating clearly without filtering for fear of consequences is a great message to those who are suffering. And and honestly, your message to those who are around those who are suffering of just be authentic. Like, don't worry about the right words. It's the caring that's going to come through. Um, that is incredibly powerful. And frankly, something we can all learn from not just in this, not just in this context, but in so many contexts. I mean, people need people. And 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 you know, just just being being there and being authentic is is applies in almost all circumstances. Well, I want to well, Liz, first of all, thank you so much for being my friend. Um, but but thank you also for being so. I mean, this is incredibly helpful. This, it, you know, your your struggle, your journey, your success, um, will will help others, and that's an amazing thing. I mean, people having impact on other people's lives is an incredibly major thing, and you're doing a lot of that. And I, I really admire you, and thank you. Well, thank you, and I appreciate what you're doing. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the message that there is hope and there is reason for optimism and that none of us is alone. Thanks, Liz. Take great care. Thank you. So it's hard to put words on the end of that conversation. I know I always record a wrap-up and I'm going to here, but I have to say that was special. That was important. That was powerful. That was from the heart. Um, I was really impacted by that conversation. And I hope you were too. I hope you were impacted to A, if you're suffering, please find the strength to ask for help. And if you're asking for help and people aren't giving you the help or understanding what you need, ask again. And if you're not suffering, be there for others. 
listen, keep your eyes and ears open, be sympathetic, be careful, be caring, be careful, be caring, and be there for each other. I mean, as he, as human beings, as humanity, openly talking about our, our struggles, openly caring for each other, open openly being there for each other is really what this is all about. And Liz told it very, very well. And just look around you. Someone struggling, someone suffering. And being there for each other is human and it's the right thing to do. And I hope that today's conversation with Liz will put you in a slightly better place to ask for help, give help, and be there for one another. So as I wrap this up, let me say, A, it was a pleasure to record my first 70 Meet Mediocrity podcast episodes. Um, You can also check out my YouTube channel, Meet Mediocrity on YouTube, where at least recently I've been having some episodes around work and career-related issues, challenges, opportunities, things to consider. But there's a whole array of short four-minute videos that you can watch at your leisure. Um, Maybe they're a little funny. Maybe they're a little interesting. Maybe they're a little bit meaningful to you. So check out the YouTube channel for Meet Mediocrity. Go to meetmediocrity.com where you can enter your email address. You can... Get your, my, you know, by entering my, your email address, you can get added to my newsletter uh, list. And if you send me a message through meetmediocrity.com, you can get yourself a free Meet Mediocrity t-shirt. And as spring starts moving into summer, what better to wear on a fun day at the beach or the pool or just out and about but a Meet Mediocrity t-shirt. Okay, so anyway... We're heading into Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, and we're heading into the summer months here and around the world, and I hope everyone, especially here as we're wrapping up Mental Health Awareness Month, is healthy, is caring, is speaking out about their own struggles, is there for one another, and that we're all doing our best to make each other well and to make the world a better place. Thanks, everyone, and take care.